Hey, welcome back, everybody. And before I introduce my next guest, uh, I wanted to take a minute to talk about the situation in Ukraine and in regards to the podcast, because I was thinking for a long time whether or not I should be recording, whether or not I should be publishing. But I believe um, in order for us to move on and in order to us for us to stay united and continue to support Ukraine, I wanted to use my platform in that regard and raise awareness. That's the least I can do with my platform and with the subscribership that we have on our channel and hopefully contribute to the refugees that the war caused and hopefully be able to help them to find a new life or at least to bridge this gap until the war ends. Um, I will provide some links where you can donate uh, internationally, Lithuanians in Germany, so you'll find it in the show notes below, whether it's on audio or on the YouTube platform, and you'll be able to contribute in one way or another. There's always something we can do, and I believe that's the least that I can do. So we're moving forward. I believe that positivity is the only way out. Um, negativity will only carry you that far, and I think that positivity will win in the end. So let's stay positive. Let's continue to support Ukrainians in all ways possible and uh, continue to fight through and push through these tough times. Um, the guest today that was recorded in mid-February, February 16th, which is Lithuania's Independence Day. Uh, so keep that in mind as you're listening. It's been uh, a month ago. Uh, we talked to Torsten Leibenat, who is currently the sports director at Ulm uh, in, in Germany's first division and EuroCup. And he is also a former coach at Ulm. He was one of the youngest coaches to be in the BBL and today he talked to me about his transition to being a young head coach, the challenges he dealt with, also to why he went overseas to, to coach in a different country early on in his career, um, as well as the challenges he dealt with when he came back. We talked about resolving conflicts, uh, how to gain respect as a young coach, and many different topics that I think can interest a lot of up-and-coming coaches. So please listen in, tune in, comment, like, subscribe and support Ukraine. Slava Ukraini! Torsten, good morning, I, would, I should say, probably. Yes, good morning. It's it's still um, early enough to say good morning, I guess. Yeah, in, in Lithuania, it's, it's noonish, so it's kind of noonish, but I don't know, I ask you if you hear anything in the background. Um, I Luckily, you can't. I can. So I hope this podcast will not get disturbed. But uh, if you had to guess what today's day means for Lithuania, uh, do you would could you guess February sixteenth? I could guess, and uh, I would guess something uh, in terms of independence. But yes, uh, it's yes. definitely just a guess. Yes, the independence. Independence. It is. I'm wearing a Lithuania sweater from from uh, my national team times, and it's. Yeah. It's a big representation today. You're wearing yes. Ulm, I'm wearing Lithuania. Do you have do you have any Lithuanian stories, any connections, anything from your past that that remind you or you have um traveled to maybe for games? Is there anything that you can really uh, have a fond memory of? Yes, um and I always lost in Lithuanian. So <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should call the memories fond, um but um yeah, as impressive as Lithuania is not only as a basketball country but as a country itself um they they made sure they impressed me also on the court uh, one time 
where we played with the Artland Dragons against Lieto Vasritas, um, back then with Chuck Eitzen, who I also had the privilege to, to coach as an assistant coach and who single-handedly killed us. But, but the whole team was unbelievable back then. Uh, Rimas Kotinaitis was coaching them. Um, and I also remember playing there against Lied um, Kabelis um, with Ratze van Ulm, also in the Euro Cup. And uh, similar experience. I thought we, we were the favorites going into this game, but um, they, they did a job on us, were really well coached, um, I think, by Max Vitis. Um, and um, they also beat us at their place. Uh, there is a, <laughs> we have some airplanes coming over Lithuania now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, the, the, um, that's the year with Ritas, I think that, I think Aaron Baines was also, uh, the center, wasn't it? Or was it, um, after that Aaron Baines was Aaron Baines there? To, to be perfectly honest, I cannot recall. I know just, um, there, there were quite a few Lithuanian players that I hadn't heard of before and, and um, they were unbelievably in, in terms of shooting, in terms of um, shooting out of a high pace, uh, like their transition offense. Um, they, they come down the lane and they immediately fire and, and their, their footwork was unbelievable. And, and it left a mark on, on me as a coach because um, I felt shooting is one thing, shooting at a maximum pace is something else. And, and Lithuanian players probably um, their best in it. Yeah, the the high pace that's Cortinitis is also the transition offense, the um, traditional flow offense in Lithuania. Every youth team also plays up until now, mostly. I mean, there's there's been some variations of it, but Cortinitis uh, was known for that, and that that team was very strong in in that very good up and down team like you said with sharing the ball was the emphasis obviously and and uh, the unselfishness yeah. especially with a guy also like Chuck Aitzen who can make the play exactly. for anybody and put you guys in pick and rolls it's it's a uh, i mean you can only as a coach you can only enjoy those kind of players having on your team the versatility they give you yeah yeah i remember when he came first to europe he started out his european career in 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 Gießen. And we actually even had him on a tryout and Stefan Koch, who was the head coach at the time, and I, I happened to be the assistant coach. We, we basically called off this, uh, the, the tryout after the first practice yeah, because <laughs> it was so obvious how unbelievably good he is. Yeah, we, we ha I had an experience like that also in Germany in the second division. We had some guys in tryouts that... that that you think like oh uh, like let's see if 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 it's gonna work or not. There's the the background of the player that has maybe a year off, and we had a guy who was on tryout, and um, you probably you may have you may remember him um, because he played for Göttingen afterwards, uh, is, and then had a long career in Poland. Rocky tries. Do you remember him? He was on my team too. That's right. Uh, I coached uh, him in Ulm for in one Ulm. season. Yeah. That's right. One year. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, excellent player, um, unbelievable player for 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 a guy his size. Yeah, you you wouldn't believe how much rebounds he gets, how much steals he gets. Yeah, like he, he was slim in a way, but uh, he would call it wiry strong, and, and I agree with that. Um, yeah, great mid range jump shooter, lefty, and, and just a pest on defense. Yes, and that's that was the thing that he 
he caught us on and he to me to us he was like a, a six man kind of we we signed him at late of, of preparation and then we're like uh let's see like let's, let's just bring it in it's it's a really he had a year off because he played in, in the lower in the semi-pro league he, french french um contract didn't work out he was supposed to sign in france so he had basically a year off and then you get him in and you see practices and he dunks it with one dribble from half court and he presses full court and and, and um you just are thinking like this guy cannot come off the bench. <laughs> he ends up being a starter. And I think he won the MVP that year too of yeah. the league. So, I mean, uh, and we played, we beat John Patrick that year in, in the cup and, and gutting and signed him right away the, the, the following year. Cause it was, it was too obvious that yeah. he was just not, not, not for pro a uh, at that point. But the, the reason I can't believe, I forgot that you coached him. I can't believe that, 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 that didn't ring a bell. Um, and it was a real successful season. It was the season when we made the finals, uh, 11-12. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one reason I want to talk to you. You are the sports director at home, but I, I, you also have a rich history of being a head coach and a young head coach. And the topics today mostly will revolve around coaching uh, and, and mm -hmm. head coach, but also the transition periods from assistant coach mm -hmm. to head coach, from head coach to sports director, and being young, basically, in all positions, uh, coming into the professions at a young age. But to touch a little bit on your background, I saw that you were born in Leverkusen. Did the Leverkusen um, Hochburg, as you call it, the basketball traditional, because it was a team that, um, oh, by the way, we also beat that year with Rocky Tries <laughs> uh, when, when they come to, came to play us in the cup. But did that tradition... Um, inspire you also to to go into coaching and go into into the basketball profession in general was that a, a had a big effect on your career it definitely had like when when you're a kid you want to be a player uh, you don't uh, envision yourself being a coach so so i had, a, had big dreams of becoming a bundesliga player national team player whatever um and I, I saw all the 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 great european players in leverkusen because it was the the The, the best time in Leverkusen basketball. Dirk Bauermann was coaching the team, was winning seven German championships in a row, something like that. And they were all also playing Euroleague. So um, I saw Limoges, I saw um, Hugo Plastica split, I saw um, Aris Saloniki, all those teams. And back then I was a 12-year-old kid and it, it left a big mark. But getting into basketball is even uh, funnier um, because my sister, who's 12 years older, she was uh, going to school with Detlef Schrempf. Oh, and nice. She, she, she didn't know much about basketball, but she basically told me, yeah, I remember I was in school with Detlef Schrempf and he, he loved basketball. Why don't you just start playing basketball too? <laughs> and um, this is how I got into basketball. Yeah? And in that um, school class, there was a second basketball player um, Uwe Brauer, who also had a um, rich career in the German Bundesliga. And probably because of those two guys, I started to play basketball. And then I happened to be a youth player in that um, yeah, famous phase of Leverkusen basketball. I saw so many great players yeah, and obviously also great coaches. And probably this is what got me into coaching later on as well. Yeah, Leverkusen. Leverkusen was basically to me what I remember. Cause it was it was a, a it was nineties. I assume it was late nineties, yeah. nineties uh, where they had yeah, like early nineties, early late eighties, yeah. early nineties. I'm a little bit older than you would guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it, it 
it was basically what I can compare it to. It was like the 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 Bamberg before Bamberg uh, happened. That that long stretch yeah. of of championships yeah. and domination of the German German yeah. league. Yeah, yeah, it really was like that. And at some point, um, Berlin um, came up during that uh, stretch. But it was usually you, you could tell Leverkusen's going to end up in the final. Maybe Hagen, maybe Bayreuth. Um, maybe Berlin later on. Yeah, they, they will meet Leverkusen in the final, but, but they 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 were just as dominant as um, Bamberg were a few years ago. Yeah, that was because that was the times. That was the, my my first years in Germany because I I grew up. I started school in the in ninety ninety nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. So and then I, I was my, my my father was playing obviously, and you you follow basketball, but I was more on the street ball on the street either in the gym or on the street ball court because we had we were in a small small team. So but Leverkusen always rang a bell in 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 the in the German basketball world. But to transfer to it right into coaching. Becoming a head coach at 31, if my um, uh, calculations are correct, in Scotland. So how how did Scotland first of all come about? And as if coming from Germany, going from Germany and going straight into Scotland to coach and leading the team to the finals, and then becoming a head coach in general at 31 is not easy. And and I was wondering what the what the preparation was for that first um, role as a head coach. In a foreign country in Scotland, which is known more for um, soccer, probably I would assume. Yes, it's definitely known more for soccer. <laughs> um, maybe rugby over basketball too. Um, w- one thing helped, um, and this is that I basically sucked in playing basketball. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I found that out uh, quite early. I played a little bit on the second division level, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't athletic enough. So at some point, uh, I, I saw that, but I, I had a huge passion for basketball. And I told myself, I need to stay in that sport. And what other way is there than becoming a coach? So um, I happened to be an assistant coach on a second division team uh, when I was 23. Um, we moved up to the first division. So all of a sudden, I'm 24. I'm in the first division as an assistant coach. Um, and... I guess people noticed me and a bigger club, Gießen, came up and offered me the assistant coaching role. So with 25, I was a regular assistant coach on a professional basketball team. And from that point, I really made it clear my my dream, my goal is to become a head coach too. And I will sacrifice, I will prepare for this opportunity and I need to make smart steps. And I felt one smart step is um, to become a head coach as soon as possible, but on a level that gives me an opportunity to make it to the Bundesliga afterwards. Mm -hmm. And back at the time, I felt if you start on a second division team in Germany, there's only one way to, to make it to a first division. And this is you have to move a team up. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a challenging task. And if you don't move the team up, you will always be labeled as a second division coach. So for me, and I know the, the, the um, British basketball was below the second division in terms of the level of basketball back mm-hmm. then. But to me, it was more important I start in a first division. 
in whatever country. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I interviewed for for jobs in in the Netherlands. Uh, I, I would have gone to to any country that that has somewhat a professional basketball level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I wanted to be considered a, a first division coach because as a first division coach you get first division opportunities in other countries. As a second division coach, you you for whatever reason you will be labeled as second division coach. So I, I refused to take offers from the second division in Germany and rather decided to go outside of Germany into a first division. And I was lucky to to um, work as an assistant coach with Chris Finch, who now is mm-hmm. the head coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has um, a rich tradition as a head coach in Great Britain. So he knew a lot of people and he got me in contact with, with the um, Scottish Rocks back then, now Glasgow Rocks, um, the only Scottish team in the British League. And um, they felt that they wanted to have a different approach than they used to have. They wanted to have a European-oriented coach, a young coach. Um, and Chris obviously told them about me and they interviewed me. They liked what they heard. And this is why I moved to, to Scotland. And it was a, a very um, yeah, impressive experience for me. What was, the, what was the most impressive part about it? I, mean, I can imagine just the culture change going to the outside the country, working, being, it's, it's a lot of firsts. It's a lot of first-time head coach, first time in, in yeah. I assume, in Scotland, maybe also first time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, first time dealing with a different mentality. So there's a lot of firsts involved for a rookie head coach. What, what were the, the things that you remember the most and being challenged on the most during that time? Well, let's start like that. The first two weeks, I didn't understand a word. I was thinking they speak English um, and they say they do, but it has nothing to do with what I call English. Uh, so so I had to adjust to the language. Uh, as funny as it sounds, uh, um, now I love hearing the Scottish accent back then. I really struggled early on. And then you drive on the left side of the street. Uh, you, you have to adjust to that. All of a sudden, you, you're used to some sort of club infrastructure that they simply don't have. Uh, you you. You have to pay for any practice you want to have. So I had to fight with our owner. Can we practice in the morning? Now it's too expensive. Uh, we cannot afford um, to, to rent the, 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 the gym. Uh, we much rather send the players to schools in order to generate money from, from government funding. And I said, well, th- this is good, but, but in order to be successful on the core, we need to practice. Uh, and so so I had to... Um, I had to challenge them w- w- with my idea of professional basketball and had to, to um, come up with compromises so we can practice, but we can also generate money. I was in charge of um, negotiating the, the contracts back then. They, they didn't have a sports director or um, they, they did have a GM, but he was more um, responsible for, for sponsorships and, and filling the gym with, with spectators. Uh, so, so I had to do a lot of things on my, my own, uh, improving their situation. And um, I remember also installing a, a basketball philosophy that they simply weren't used to. The whole team used to play, uh, let's say, a free-flow offense, read and react, uh, like you would have it in certain colleges. Um, 
And I told them, no, we will run more of a set play offense. And we lost the first three games. And there's the veteran coming up to me saying, uh, Julius Joseph, by the way, great player. So, well, coach, I really like what you're doing, but why don't we just add a few of those um, read and react principles and let's uh, improvise a little bit more. I said, no, we're going to keep doing it my way. He, he had to suck that up and... It took some time until we became successful, but we ended up making it to the club uh, cup final. We ended up making it to the playoffs final, uh, and it was one of the most successful seasons of the club's history. Do you do you think like it's hard for for a young? How old how old was um, uh, Joseph at that time? He was older than me. So how how difficult is that to stand up for your own principles and for your own belief, your own system? at a young age without having the experience of really fighting through that and, and, and navigating the waters of talking to veterans, talking to players that are older and, and not even negotiating, but sticking to your, to your guns, basically, was that, did you feel the inner challenge or was that to you a no brainer? And you really, you, uh, did you have to even consult maybe with a mentor about, about what to do? No, that, that was a big challenge. What definitely helps in, in that regard is if you have the support uh, of the club, of the owner, of the GM, uh, and and they wanted to, to to look different on the court. They 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 really wanted that European approach of, of more set play style offense. Uh, so so with that support, it was possible for me to to convince the players. And also uh, soon the progress came uh, and the success came, and, and then they saw it, and then it was a no brainer for them too. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's always a bigger challenge when you're a young person to convince people. Yeah, convince people with a lot of experience. But um, the the biggest thing is you need to be competent. You, you need to prove to them that you know what you're talking about. As soon as you do that, they don't care about your age. If they feel you don't have the answers and you're you're fishing for excuses or you cannot give a logical response, then they might eat your life. Yeah, yeah. And and you obviously felt ready for that challenge. You obviously felt ready to anticipate also the questions that, that will come because as a coach, you always have mm -hmm. to anticipate which questions may arise when I implement this, when I do this, when I say this, then you always have to think two, three steps ahead of time. And Exactly. And I, I learned that from Ettore Messina. He said like, um, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter so much what you're doing as long as you can explain why you're doing it. Yeah, so, so you can run a hard hedge pick and roll defense. You can run a flat defense if you have a good explanation why you believe this is the right thing. And then you also have the personality to sell it. Yeah, then, then players will follow. Absolutely. That's the, the, why, the why left the biggest impression when after uh, after being with Ettore for 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 a lot and and talking have a lot of discussions i had my experience as well where you give a suggestion of how why to of of what to do and then he says why and you don't have an answer guess who's going to suffer <laughs> like i yes. i i have to have an answer prepared like he's going to listen but he also wants an explanation like why are we doing this what's helpful why why should that be successful over this um so and trust me not only messina is asking those questions Players are asking those questions too. Yeah, like there's a post-game meeting. Yeah, coach decided to to uh, run full court trap in the 32nd minute. 
Yeah, players gonna ask, why did we do that? We, we we exposed ourselves around the basket. If you don't have a good answer, then 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 this upcoming week is gonna be trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, talking about the owners, you said the owners gave you support. Did they have a basketball background? Uh, they actually didn't, um, and that was was kind of surprising to me. That told told me what what smart brains there were. They they were listening to 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 smart people like Chris Finch, and um, that's why they believed. Okay, this is the right way to do. They they watch a lot of basketball. They 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 didn't necessarily like the 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 way basketball was handled in Great Britain. They wanted to do it better. They wanted to do it different and. And you can definitely tell it's it's still 30 years behind. Uh, unfortunately, they they haven't set the standards like the the German BBL did. Yeah, like you need to play in in gyms with with, with the amount of like say 3,000 spectators. All those standards that that the German league developed, Great Britain struggled to develop, and mm. that's why I believe they're behind. But um, the ownership I had in Glasgow was very forward thinking, and they wanted to change things. Um, and um, that obviously helped me um, being backed up by them. Credit, credit to them. Credit, credit yeah. to to really um, sticking with it and and not really listening to too many opinions. So too many, too many, too many cooks can ruin the soup, right? <laughs> This is what I experience quite often as a coach. You need to um, receive certain power. Yeah, and um, for me, when choosing a job. Um, as a head coach, it was always important that I have a say in choosing players too. Because as a head coach, you will be held responsible. Mm -hmm. So if, um, if I will be held responsible for, for losses, I will always want to have a say. Uh, I want to have a say in what personnel I, 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 I navigate, I, I, I lead. Yeah? So um, Whenever I had the feeling, uh, and this is working perfectly in Ulm um, at the time when I was the head coach, like it was two people deciding, uh, Dr. Thomas Stoll and me, um, each of us could veto a suggestion from the other. And we, we both had to agree on a player and then we would sign. And mm -hmm. that's a, that was an easy, um, easy solution. But in too many clubs, I see there's five, six guys on a board uh, trying to talk um, when players are signed. And it's a, a way slower process. And it's a process where, 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 where all of a sudden you, you need to make compromises you don't really feel like doing. Mm -hmm. And it, especially, like you said, because you will held accountable and both guys understand and know basketball, it's important just to stick with that because the more people come in with, with not, with not the, full idea of what you want to do as a coach and not the full idea of what the, the big picture looks like and just like veto on the player without knowing what his role will be or how it would look like within the team's uh, team concept. It's, it's, it's really uh, de deconstructive. I mean, it's, it's really, you're, 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 you're shooting yourself in the foot and, and miss out probably on some players. So two, two guys, maybe three, maybe a third person. Exactly. To have to have this core and sticking with that is 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 I think the the most important part to, of building a successful roster. And I also have to say, especially when I was younger, there there's a certain amount of insecurity yeah, about mm -hmm. your decision making. Mm -hmm. I think it's normal, uh, or at least it was part of my personality. And 
the more people would try to influence me, obviously, the more opinions you hear and the less secure you you be you get about your own opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it's just like when you consult a doctor, uh, you consult a second doctor, and all of a sudden, uh, two doctors consulted, three opinions you have. And <laughs> in coaching and in recruiting, it's not difference, no difference. Uh, it's it's everybody has his own opinion. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I experienced that it does help me when I stick to my gut feeling. And mm-hmm. um, the, the gut feeling is more dominant when I don't hear too many different opinions. That's what Sharas was saying, uh, something similar in the, in the regards of uh, gathering opinions, but also mm-hmm. feeling some sort of like not, I wouldn't say insecurity, but second guessing yourself the whole time mm-hmm. because you, you, you just don't have the experience. And then he said, the yeah. longer the longer you do it, the more you go through the preparation process, the more you trust the process. And he said when they were going through a losing streak, it was more of like they were there was no panic. They're like, I think I believe yeah. he said nine games in a row at, at some point with Jaguars. And there was no panic because they knew that they were building towards something and the process was there and, and the implementation of the philosophy, they were working. And you you just kind of, like you said, you, got, you trust your gut, but you also trust the experience that you already put in. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I, I think it's still important to consult a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But um, consulting people is different than giving them the power to, to, to also decide with you. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so me as a head coach, whenever there was a basketball topic, uh, um, I felt I shouldn't be the only one um, judging on it because I never played on the Euro Cup level. I never even played on the BBL level. Why not speak to my players? Yeah? Why not hear their opinion? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then quite often I, I felt a little different about a certain topic, what kind of uh, pick and roll coverage we should uh, use against Bamberg. But if the majority of my team feels nah, we, we should play it more conservative, yeah, let's stick with it. Uh, so in that regard, I, I was pretty flexible as a coach. Yeah, but um, also, I, I still believe making decisions based on your gut feeling is, is important because now you can really um, sell this yeah, because you're really convinced of it. Yeah? If you, you, you try to sell a decision you're not convinced of, Players will, will feel that, and then they're not convinced of doing it neither. A quick, quick scientific uh, uh, explanation for that from Dr. Benas. Um, so there's, there's, there's a, the, the most neurons you have are in your brain, and the second most neurons that are floating around, guess where they are? Probably in your stomach. In your stomach, in your gut. And then the third, I think, is in your heart. But that's just, just a little tidbit, tidbit here from Dr. Benas um, from listening all, all kinds of podcasts all day long. Um, the, you asking players for consulting uh, for consulting players for for opinion. Um, it's a big thing, and I I think that that shows you're you're making yourself vulnerable as a coach, but you also show that you trust them. And then I feel like that you show them the trust. You give them the opportunity to say something to consult in front of everybody on the floor. And and kind of navigating through the different different options that we can go through and why we're doing it, giving them the opinion uh, the the opportunity to be involved in the process, I think gives them also a sense of holding themselves accountable. And, and I think and, it's super important. Uh, like we 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 pay them uh, uh, really a lot of money, yeah. And why should they only be consumers of orders? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I want them to 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 be an active part in the decision making mm-hmm. like in, in 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 the solution finding 
Yeah, they're, they're too expensive to just receive orders and follow them. Yeah, um, so why not use their knowledge? Why not use their creativity in order to find solutions? And then, as you said, the, the, the second aspect behind it is they will be way more convinced executing those um, um, solutions they found together. Did they ever back? Did that ever backfire on you? Any 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 moment where you felt like, oh, I shouldn't have asked it this time? Maybe like it was maybe at the right time yeah. or that right person. Yeah. Maybe that one person is really negative and really looks for something to to poke on. Exactly. Like uh, some players, uh, they, they 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 demand that leadership where where the coach uh, decides everything and, and there's no second guessing. There's no questioning his authority. And and to me, it was always like uh, it's no lack of authority or lack of competence if I let them um, have a say in, in solution finding. Um, one thing needs to be clear, though, and I felt most of my players understood that, the timing is crucial. You cannot start a discussion round mm -hmm. uh, in a timeout. Yeah? Mm -hmm. During a game, absolutely, the coach decides this is how we do it. This is how we roll. Maybe uh, at halftime. In that break, you could still hear their opinions, but in a timeout, there's just not enough time yeah, to, to, to hear everybody out. Yeah. So during a game, it's pretty obvious the coach makes the decisions and we roll with it. Before and after, let's come up with solutions collectively. And so it's it's mostly timing and also roster roster dependent uh, i would say like mm -hmm. right like the, the roster you have to kind of you you have, you kind of again you trust your gut a little bit you see how they are who they are as a person how they react and how they really absorb information sometimes it's it's better it's maybe more more useful more productive to consult and sometimes mm -hmm. it's better just to be a exactly a, a dictator yeah. for a day or two <laughs> yeah and i remember with new teams uh, early on I, i let them um sort out our, our team goals mm -hmm. and for some of the players this was totally unusual uh, they felt uh, why is the coach not telling us what our goals are this season no, but i felt um if the team agrees on a um, collective goal for the season yeah then then i can really hold them accountable yeah uh, if i just put that on them yeah let's let's finish top four And they feel now we're not that good. Uh, mm. Where's the motivation to really work for this goal? Mm -hmm. That's that's a very good point too. Uh, make make them they they. But how early do you do that? Like right away because they don't even no, know. No, right away is uh, is too early. And yeah. actually, I, I I wouldn't have an opinion um, in the first week of uh, camp. Uh, yeah. I don't know how good we can possibly be. But at some point, let's say like. After five, six weeks, one or two weeks into uh, before the season starts, this is when uh, I would sit my teams uh, together, and this is where we would have a, a open discussion about mm -hmm. um, season goals, about um, um, qualitative goals, about quantitative goals, um, and and we we broke it down. Yeah, we we wanted to develop standards that will lead into certain goals. Yeah, and mm -hmm. those. Let's say numbers goals less than 14 turnovers per game, something like that, mm -hmm. or um, out rebound our opponent in every game. Yeah, those, those numbers goals would lead into our season goals. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to go back on on your career a little bit on the path because uh, I, the, the, when I remember when I was finally 
more conscious and I came back from from the states and I was more conscious about of the BBL and I was I was more involved in the process in in, in following uh, the pro A and the BBL. I remember you mostly from uh, Artland. That's that's the first time. That's the, when I, I had the 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 first kind of on TV. Obviously, I, we didn't we didn't meet until later on, but mm-hmm. on uh, and that was the time where I was like, man, young a young head coach is able to be to be in the BBL and to to implement his 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 style and 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 uh, be successful. And I mean, Artland is a very basketball. Uh, community very t- small town Quackenbrook but it's 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 all about basketball it's, and some similar like the north at that time it was like the north of Bamberg north north northern version of Bamberg it was always full always packed and I remember you in some regards now it's because I worked for the, for the Celtics it's kind of like you were the first uh, the German version of Brad Stevens like you know how old he was when he became head coach no well, maybe 30. 34 30 30 okay. yeah and he turned 31 that year in october so okay. so it is it and, and then you became you went to the front office you're in the front office i mean there's a lot of parallels that you can see that you, you said like you're you're younger than you than you're young i mean you're still young so it's in many regards that's what i remember you always being young but how did that calmness come from because i remember you being calm and collected also and and uh, during mm-hmm. games and there, there was there was sometimes also obviously you you had emotions uh, obviously and, mm-hmm. and, sh- and probably at Quackenbrook home games it automatically it forces you to be emotional but i i always saw you um v- during games observing the game with a very strict and stri- straight idea of what it should be how, where did that come from how did that how did that come about If I look back at my time at Artland, I have to say it wasn't as successful as we planned out. Twice we missed the playoffs, um, also by losing the head-to-head. So it was a pretty close run, but this team had a top-five budget, I would say, and Mm. uh, not finishing top eight is a a failure. So um, on the international level, we, we played decent basketball. We were pretty successful. I put the teams together more in regards of competing on the international level than really looking what's needed on the on the BBL level. And one thing that I described before, um, going with your gut feeling, I didn't do that enough in Ireland. Mm. Um, back then, I, I would say I was still insecure as a coach, you know, mm. trying to find my 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 approach to the game, try to find my identity as a coach, and. I would listen to too, too many opinions. Uh, I would take too much advice. And one advice I remember was, like, this is a club um, that should dominate with its um, basketball concept. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, when I was successful in, in Glasgow, I was always trying to adjust to my opponent. Now, You look at Alba Berlin when Pesic was um, coaching them. They were dominant with with their approach. Like their basketball mindset was we're playing more physical on defense than anybody else. And with that approach, we will win games. It might not be beautiful, but nobody can stand that for 40 minutes. And this is how they won a couple of championships. And being a somewhat big club um, or a bigger club, top five budget back then, I was listening to the advice, let's try to be like that too. Mm -hmm. So I followed that advice 
although my gut feeling would say no let's still be be adjusting to our opponents sometimes yes you can play a defense where where you try to just be way more physical and way more aggressive but there's some situations where where it's smarter to to yeah stay away from a non shooter rather than pressuring him to an extent where he just can break you down with a quick uh, explosive first step mm-hmm. so back then i was still insecure and probably not calm enough and not confident in my decision making enough and that's why i felt um i i wasn't as successful as i wanted to be and the club wanted me to be and i went back to going with what i really believe in in terms of basketball being flexible adjusting adjusting to the roster adjusting to the opponent's roster always preparing 100% not just saying this is our philosophy we we will do it no matter who we going to play mm-hmm. and then coming back to uh, coming to Ulm I, I i stuck with that and this is when i went back on the path of success i would say so that's one thing i wanted also wanted to touch on in Ulm that successful part especially the 27 game winning streak i remember that also it was it was a long stretch of 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 games winning and i was wondering the biggest like there's teams that go through losing losing stretches and there's winning stretches and there's two different styles of like i've seen both trust me <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure but 27 games of winning is 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 a, it's a huge it's a long streak tell me what the, what were the challenges that you feel did you remember your team had of or you had with the team to keep them motivated and to keep them uh, engaged after 16 wins 17 wins i mean it's still like you feel like the, the team internally feels like they're un, unbeatable probably then there's kind of come some sort of hubris can, can sneak in you can be too confident you can be cocky how do you keep them humble how do you keep them with the eyes on the prize basically and keep winning because obviously at some point it will end but you want it to end it the right way if it ends you don't want it to end because you made the mistake because of but because the other team was just better but how did you keep them motivated and engaged and not get sidetracked with themselves this really was a unique uh, team and um i never had the feeling like hubris would 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 show up yeah like i never felt uh, they will become cocky now um they 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 enjoyed that right they really once they felt man we won five in a row let's 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 go for 10 and they they got so excited and um they remained humble um one thing that definitely helped was that we also competed in the euro cup during that time um and there we couldn't win all the games yeah we, we had some tough losses yeah so So there was a reality check while we had the BBL winning record or winning run um the reality check came during the week yeah so mm-hmm. so we lost some games there and the the players saw well, well we're not unbeatable we are unbeatable but we are also pretty good and back when the weekend came and we played national competition the the team kept rolling and we had some average performances during that streak too but one thing i could always rely on that the team showed great character in the last quarter mm-hmm. and we had the the tactical flexibility by by changing the rhythm of the game um due to our personnel like we, we would run 
conservative um, pick and roll coverages on defense for 30 minutes, we would be down 10 points. And then we would switch it up to, to switching defense. Now, when you have Augustine Rubit, Raymond Morgan, Deshaun Butler at the, the big spots, they can switch out to point guards. Uh, then mm -hmm. you have Chris Babb, Taylor Braun, Carsten Tata, Braden Hobbs at the guard spots. They, they can front a big. All of a sudden, we would change the momentum of the game by switching mm -hmm. our pick and roll coverages. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would come up with wins. There were some lucky ones. But, but what I embraced uh, was that the team always had the confidence in themselves but also in, in my decisions as the coach, okay, coach will make the right adjustment at some mm -hmm. point and we're still going to win it. So that, do, you, do you remember during that time having any kind of conflicts with anybody or everything was just sunshine and rainbows the whole time? No, you have conflicts every day. Yeah. Uh, like people think in a stretch like that, everything's easy. Yeah. Uh, in a stretch like that, there's one player who just played eight minutes and is pissed. Yeah? You have to manage conflicts in winning stretches, you have to manage conflicts. In losing stretches, that's just part of the game. That's why I believe a, a head coach nowadays uh, needs to have extraordinary people skills. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't need to be the best tactician, but you need to be able to manage personnel. Uh, you need to be able to manage egos. Uh, like There's big mm -hmm. egos in, in basketball, and, and for a good reason. They, they do exceptional performances. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, what happens if a guy goes 0 for 8 at the three-point line? You need to to get him back on board. You need, you need to build his confidence or you, you need to bring somebody down to earth. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Like when he had an exceptional performance and he thinks he's the greatest. Yeah? So, so no matter winning or losing stress, you need to manage personnel. How, do you remember specific moments where you, you had to, like, you were even challenged on a certain regard where you had to talk in a certain way? Or you, you, how did you handle conflict mostly? Did you, did you talk to them one on one? Did you, did you do it also in front of the team? What, what was for? Did you have a certain approach for handling conflict, or is, is it uh, from person to person different? It, it always depends. It, it depends uh, from person to person. It depends from conflict to conflict. Some of the conflicts you would. You would address in front of the team in order to, 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 to send a message. Sometimes it's better to do it individually. Sometimes with the same player, you feel, okay, I did it individually. The success was uh, average. Uh, let's, let's go to the next uh, level of um, uh, um, problem solving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yes, it, it's tougher when, when you address issues uh, in front of the whole group, but sometimes it's necessary. And I wasn't afraid of doing it, but I also wasn't that type of coach who, who would always do it like that because players are sensitive too. And uh, if you can avoid bigger issues, why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you find different personalities throughout the course of, of, of careers, of seasons. They, sometimes the personalities come out in certain situations only. And that yeah. also, that's also part of the experience that you as a coach or whichever position you have, that especially as a coach, because you're so close to them, you, yeah. you start gathering new information for you to process and you have to have some sort of emotional intelligence as a coach as well. Yeah. You have to be able to absorb, reflect and understand where this emotion is coming from, what's it intertwined with, where is he coming from? So there's a lot of nuances involved in, in those kind of in conflict solving, I think. That's why I like uh, the, the soccer approach in Great Britain or in England. Um, they would call the head coach, not head coach. They call the manager. 
Yep. Um, he manages things. He manages the team, the, the setup of the team. He manages the tactics. He manages uh, the personnel. Mm. And um, as a modern head coach in basketball, you're a manager. You're a people's manager. Uh, you need to have people skills. Yes, you need to know about X's and O's. But you also need to know how to um, include your athletic coach. You mm -hmm. need to know how to um, um, include your youth program. Uh, there's so much more than just telling somebody run from A to B and uh, make that shot. Yeah, um, that that I I like the the, the English soccer version of head coach, uh, which is called manager. I agree. I agree. So transitioning to the sports director position and then looking back to the head coaching position, looking at it from a different angle, different perspective, is there something that jumps out at you that you feel like I, I, you could have, you, you would do something different uh, going forward or going backwards when you feel like then at the time where certain situations arise looking as a sports director that you had as a coach and that you see maybe Yaka handling it in a certain way and there are certain things that you can take away from? Well, now as a sports director, but also when I was a head coach, I, I would look at a player and um, something would have to um, catch my eye. He, he needed to have a unique, um, you, you call it USP, unique selling point. What, what's the, the specialty about a player? <clears throat> and I also feel as a head coach, you need to be unique in, in some way. Yeah. Is it um, how to like like I give you an example? John Patrick is unique because he he emphasizes the offensive rebound so much, the pressure on defense. Ingo Freier is unique. Uh, like there, there are certain coaches who are simply unique in their approach, yeah? and um, you don't need to agree with, with their approach, but you need to have something that um, differentiates yourself from mm -hmm. from the other coaches and. Mm -hmm. Looking at my, me as a younger coach, I was probably just a coach, yeah, but I, I didn't have that clear identity as a coach. Yeah, like the, I always struggle with the word philosophy because it's such a big word, but you have to have a clear idea. And this idea should be different to the other 17 ideas out there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a very good point. Also, a good, uh, yeah. Selling point to other coaches. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. um, when I'm when I have to hire the ne next coach, well, I will look at people that that stand out that are unique in a certain way. Yeah, like mm -hmm. uh, I don't care if how many titles they won. There are so many coaches who won titles, but but I I, I will look for something that that catches my eye that I mm -hmm. find okay with that approach. He can do something big uh, because it's different to all the other approaches. Mm -hmm. um, I was probably pretty cocky myself as a coach. I would never run all the plays that, that were just common. Yeah, like you, you, you see trends in basketball, yeah? mm -hmm. and right now it's the side pick and roll into top pick and roll. Yeah, like when I see a trend like that, I would would not implement it in my my playbook because I was too cocky. I said, okay, that's just copying. Let's try to try something different. Yeah. And um, so I, I would probably look for a coach who initiated a new trend yeah, or who went back to things that worked 10 years ago and all of a sudden he's successful with that. Uh, you don't need to be an inventor every time, but I want to see this coach stands for this idea. 
I I totally agree, and I thinking I'm thinking to myself as well because I I'm too stubborn. Not like I'm too stubborn to do the same thing as somebody else is doing because I yeah. I, I always want to put my own, and I'm not only talking about X's and O's, but I always want to put my own kind of sauce on it. So yeah. maybe run a side pick and roll, and then instead of a top pick and roll, you come and change the angle on pick and roll, or like yeah. just just having something something different. It's it's always it's I don't know if it's the ego, but it's something that the extra creativity modus kicks in, and it's like 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 you said, yeah. I don't want to do the same thing. I just I just just needs to be yeah. needs to be something different all the time. Yeah. And now, if I look at myself, so what was my unique selling point? Um, definitely not having a, a clear identity, or if the clear identity, then it was being um, being able to adjust every year new. Yeah, like mm. never relying on something that worked last year. I'll do the same again. Mm. Yeah, like um, if you take a look at my playbooks. 11, 12 with John Bryan, we played totally different than 15, 16 with Raymond Morgan at the five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I always try to be as flexible as possible, being able to adjust as good as possible. And maybe that was my unique selling point. Yes. That's, and that's when stubbornness would actually hurt you. Like you need to be stubborn. Exactly. On, on, you need to be stubborn on being flexible. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so define the sports director position for me as uh, when you came in and the, the adjustment you did, but how, how would you define the, the position of learning, learning it? Well, nobody really has taught me. Um, I never had a sports director um, that I could um, yeah, learn from. So, so I did most of the things I did as a coach now mm. with, with basically focusing more on the bigger picture. Mm. Yeah, you, you're caught up in the daily business as a head coach. You need to win games. You need to win the next game. And now as a sports director, the next game is not so important. Uh, it's more important. Does the team develop into the right direction? Yeah. Do I see a, a clear path of this team or is it just going from side to side? And I, I see a clear path. Yeah, I want to try to help develop that clear path by making the right decisions. So um, the perspective changes yeah, when you're a sports director to when you're a head coach. Um, but my work hasn't changed that much. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, I have more time recruiting. I can um, be more precise. I don't just recruit in the off season. Whereas when I was a head coach, recruiting was mainly part of the off season. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Now it's a 12 month project yeah? or even longer. So also, I mean, the, the recruiting, the scouting, the, the watching, but how did the coaching prepare you for this in terms of organization? Because like coaches have to be organized. Coaches have to be disciplined in, in regards of structure uh, just also just preparing the practices, preparing the whole process. But how do you, or what tools rather, and that help you as a coach or and and values help you today in your job as a sports director? What helped me, and I think also what led me to my position now as a sports director was that I integrated myself into the whole organization as a head coach. Um, I remember they were really surprised when I said I would like to have an, uh, an office in our Geschäftsstelle, I don't know what you call it, uh, front office, back office, but I, I want to have my, my, my um, desk in there. A lot of coaches operate from home when they prepare practice uh, and then they just show up in the gym. 
and run the practice, they show up on game day. But there's no real connection to, to the front office. Uh, so um, I felt this is the heart of the club. I need to be in the heart of the club. Uh, I need to feel the pulse. I, I need to be approachable. Um, I need to hear uh, the, the concerns, the problems, the, the challenges, um, all the different um, areas have yeah, like issues in the counting, issues in the um, organization of home games, whatever. I, I, I need to hear about them. I need to be available for them yeah, because they do everything they can in order to, to build a great product. Yeah? And if a head coach can be supportive there, yeah, everybody will really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. If you isolate yourself, well, I'm, I'm the head coach, leave me alone with, with all your issues. Uh, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just X and, X's and O and team is everything. I think that makes it hard. You need to have an open mind. Uh, you, you need to be approachable for all kinds of issues that, that evolve around a basketball club. And, and I did that uh, when I was a head coach already. And I think that prepared me uh, for being an, uh, a sports director now. You basically have to live the club. That's that's it's 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 where everything happens. Like you said, it's the heart 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 and soul of the whole organization. And you you want to be, you want to feel the pulse. And and yeah, and 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 you won't believe how how the employees in the front office how much they identify with this team. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a it's disrespectful to them if you don't give them the opportunity uh, to approach you, to, to reach out to you, to communicate with you. Yeah? So I never wanted to be disrespectful. I felt um, their level of identification, um, I owe them that, that they can always reach out to me. And, and passive, passively, without the intent, they also kind of held you accountable because you felt how much they cared. And then you felt the responsibility also to yeah. give extra effort and make it work, make it all work in the big yeah. picture. And in a way, they saw how much I care because yes. they, they saw me uh, putting in hours in the office too, not just running two practices a day and that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. Like they, they were able to, to, to ask me, hey, can you, you um, come with me to a sponsor, explain them uh, our, our losing streak? And I yeah. did stuff like that uh, yeah. more than once. It's perfect, perfect segue for culture because that's also part of implementing a culture as a coach like you you are you, yeah. you're involved in the culture but you also identify with you're building something together is it yeah. easier for you or was it easier for you as a coach to implement that culture and the mentality that when you move to the front office and when you you are you have to team the players around you all the time that you can implement a culture or is it is far different but as a, as a sports director in the front office you also want to implement some sort of culture and identity into the club into the players which position from which position do you prefer which what's the biggest difference in those two culture implementation processes well <laughs> that's a great question you need to um, define where i can implement right now i have the chance to implement culture more um, with, with the front office employees as a head coach you can implement a culture better with the with the pro players Uh, so, so I would say I'm not doing less, but but the 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 um, target group is different. Where do they intertwine? 
Well, uh, this is the challenge um, that that uh, I'm facing. I need to make sure that, that there there are opportunities. And now in Corona times, it's nearly impossible. Uh, we 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 separate because we have to, uh, and there weren't enough opportunities to 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 bring both groups together. Mm-hmm. And this is a big challenge that we're facing in Corona times. That's also a, a big challenge also to implement the fans into the process because I know in Germany, the fans feel very identified, especially in smaller cities with the team. And they, they want to feel the team. They want to know. They want to communicate and interact with the players. And I think that's what also hurts. This, this, these times hurt the, the whole process of the club and the fans and the yeah. relationships between each other because you can't really interact as much. Yeah, and with us, it's it's crazy this year. We have a 9-2 record on the road. We have a negative record at home. And uh, the record is even more negative when you consider the games that we had an audience. Yeah, like mm-hmm. when we played behind closed doors, we won a couple of games. Mm-hmm. Now, yesterday, we we had our fans back. We, we lost badly. And it's weird. And we, we, we desperately need our fans. And we, we are so grateful that they support us and that they... They come whenever they get the opportunity, mm-hmm. um, and we, we haven't been able to give back, and it's 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 a tragedy. Yeah? We really feel terrible about it, and we hope we change that real soon. Um, and we hope to really interact with them again. You cannot really interact when you have a mask on. You cannot really interact when you cannot give a high five. Yeah. Uh, so it's always through a distance, and it's a shame. But these are the times we have to accept, I guess. It's such a weird dynamic, and this time it, it changed. It didn't change only the clubs; it changed society. And without getting into the politics of it, without getting into all the weeds of this whole situation, we, we all we're all affected by it. And in one way or the other, clubs, society, the world—I mean, it's there is no brainer that every every little aspect of life changed. So we we all also have to change in some ways our approach to it. So, yeah. Um, One thing also that I felt like is uh, interesting to talk to you about is prospects and not necessarily about certain prospects, but the environment for a prospect. I recently talked to Freddie Klemich, and I think you were actually very close to his um, club in, in the same region as an assist coach in Lish as he was uh, in yeah, France. Yeah, I remember him well. Yeah. So Freddie, yeah. Freddie talked, we talked about the environment and the process of, of uh Uh, how a prospect can flourish and and what do you think is is absolutely necessary for a prospect to have how, what environment you're trying to create you have the orange campus which is also probably a very big recruiting tool but in in regards of making the prospects feel at home and make them feel comfortable what do you think is most important to have them grow and be a successful professional on whatever level in the future responsibility like To me, it's the biggest thing. Um, teach them putting, responsibility or be teach them responsibility? Give them responsibility. Okay. Give them responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you have a 17 or 18-year-old prospect, eight out of 10 teams in the Bundesliga will, will have them join in practice, but they're the, always the first subs. You know, like, or they, they, they're sitting on the side. If the 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 um, veteran player needs a break, now they step in. So the the net practice time of a prospect usually is less than the net practice time of, of a veteran. Mm-hmm. I always flip that around. I felt 
the veteran, he knows basketball. He doesn't need as much practice as the young player. So I need to put the young player into a responsible environment where, where he gets he gets repetitions and he needs to do things that the veteran needs to do on the weekend. Uh, so um, it was unusual for guys like Chris Bepp, uh, like uh, we're putting the five on five teams together yeah, for, for, for a little scrimmage in practice. And he was out first. Uh, per Günther was out first. And um, they, they struggled is- to understand early on. But, but to me, it was important that David Kramer would get at least the same amount of repetitions in, in, in ball screens um, as um, Carsten Tada would get. Yeah? So um, I think this is really important when they feel I am put in a situation where I can really learn. I can make mistakes, and uh, I'm not just a um, like uh, I'm, I'm a robot in the corner uh, waiting to see the ball every fourth time. Yeah, I think then, then they can flourish. And, yes. and this is one thing I need to to watch here in this organization. Yeah, when I see Anton Gavel doing his job in, in Pro B, when I see Yaka integrating the young players. Like I need to make sure they are put in a position where they can have responsibility for a good practice and later on for a good game. That's a very interesting and and very challenging approach. I can imagine, uh, especially like you said, yes. like for first time veterans that to experience that is is a is a very different and also frustrating at some point. Yeah, like mm-hmm. uh, they say, "Give me the fucking ball." Yeah, like uh, I'll, I'll I'll run the pick and roll right here. Yes, but I still want this guy to learn it. How else should he learn? Why put him on my team if I don't put him in this position? Uh, then, then it's a waste of time. Yeah, it's it's it, basically they never practice and never play. So basically, you you're standing still, and there's that lack of development on either end. So what you're saying is to give more the- theoretical theoretical uh, practices, uh, maybe mm-hmm. also more video with veterans. Whereas for 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 um, prospects or for younger guys, they need more reps to give more practice time, on floor time as well as video time. Yeah, like it, it's all about um, the 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 economics of practices. Yeah, like if you, in a perfect world, the veteran gets a lot of repetitions and the young player gets a lot, lot of repetitions, and then the practice runs uh, three four hours. You cannot mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. So you need to be smart about it, and you need to find a good balance. Mm-hmm. Yes, sometimes the veteran also needs repetitions. That's why I would shift away from skill work, skill um, player development a little bit uh, during my team practices and rather do a lot of repetitions in three-on-three, three, in four-on-four, four, like digest the, 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 the essence of a certain set play and, and repeat that over and over. But put those young players into to the the decision making process as well uh, um, but but it's 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 a delicate issue it's mm-hmm. not easy to handle mm-hmm. also the veteran players they want to practice they they get tired when they see the young players make mistakes <laughs> uh, and um, also you need to have room for for skill work uh, so we we exclude that from a team practice do it separately And there, for example, a veteran doesn't have to do as much as a young player. Do you prepare when you recruit, when you scout, recruit rather, um, 
do you prepare the veterans for the situation that will come in, in terms of the, the process, the practice process, the philosophy that's implemented and that they are, that they, or do you, you just let it happen as it comes and you're just prepared for the reactions? No, no I think uh, it's, it's important that the player knows the situation he's getting into and he knows the overall approach of the head coach. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, I remember clubs would spend a ton of money on players and there hasn't been one phone call between the player and the coach to me that's amazing yeah, like first of all from the perspective of the player i want to know who i work for yeah maybe i cannot relate to him but also for for a club that invests a ton of money why not have a personal conversation between the two people that have to work so closely together that you know conflicts gonna arise yeah. so so I always try to give a good picture of what the player puts himself into and also get a good feel for the player I will have to work with. Mm -hmm. And um, people who heard a few of my um, keynotes, they, they know um, I call it the beer rule. Um, to me, it was always important after a talk with a player, I get the impression if I had to spend a night in a bar, in a restaurant with him, having a few beers, I would feel entertained and I wouldn't um, leave the, the bar saying, well, that was a waste of time. If I have this kind of fear with a player, then I know I can work with him because I can, I can find solutions uh, when issues arise. Uh, like I, I can relate to him on a personal level and it's not just going to be a daily hassle. Uh, well, I have to see this face again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. I actually never went out with players and had beers with them, but I still, um, like my beer rule still is very valuable. I need to need to relate to a player on a personal level. Otherwise, I don't think it will be a constructive work environment. Don't get me started on communication. <laughs> Everybody who knows me knows that this is this is the. Yeah. That's, A und O. <laughs> exactly. The it's, A and O. <laughs> the A and O. Absolutely. It's it's a it's a never-ending flow. It's supposed to be open. And you sometimes have to have these these talks also to take the mask off. Like you, we we need to yeah. take these. We don't I, I I generally try not to carry a mask and I I I never and just being transparent, but also having the feel that you're talking to a human, I think is important from both perspectives. I mean, there's obviously yeah. always one party that may or may not may take advantage of that and you have to be yeah. ready for that you have to you you make yourself vulnerable for that but i think the payoff is much much bigger if you if you do so so i i'm generally just an open door open door policy and then at some point like joe rogan said you started with 100 points and then i'm saying i'm see how many where where are we going from there yeah um, so you you do you have a coach's mindset it's obvious and it's obvious it, it helped you also in in your current job But are you ready for my ATOs still? Uh, even though you're not on the court right now, I'm, I'm going to draw up some ATOs for you. Yeah, please go ahead. Okay. All right. So just quick, quick trigger questions, uh, quick hitter, and you're, you're shooting shot fire here. Um, biggest advice from your older self to your younger self as a coach? Listen to your gut feeling. If you had, to do, yeah. If you had to do it over again, would you change something? I would um, probably practice harder as a player and see 
and practice smarter also and see if I can maybe make it uh, to to the first division. Yeah, like I, I'm still that um, ambitious in basketball and I have such admiration for this sport. Um, I would try a little bit smarter to see where this leads me because now I know how you practice have to practice as a young mm -hmm. player. I know how much video you should watch. Yeah. Okay, back then it was difficult to, to, to watch video. Um, but I would simply practice different and make a couple decisions differently. I, I had the opportunity to go to the States to high school. I probably would have chosen that. But but I, I would, first of all, try to, to get my playing career on, um, uh, on board. And as a coach, I, I'm actually fine with the decisions I made with the approach I had. Um, biggest sliding door moment in your career where things could have turned out differently than they have? Well, I, I was close to closing the chapter, um, being a basketball coach. Um, after Artland, um, the, the, the lack of success with the Artland Dragons. Um, I, I gave myself one year to see if I have a market in, in the, this basketball world. Um, after seven months, I received an offer from a second division team uh, in Osnabrück, which turned out to be a disaster because the management uh, didn't do a good job at all. Um, and uh, people were lied to. So uh, it ended up in insolvency. So here it's 10 months later, and I feel like, okay, now you have you give yourself two more months, and maybe basketball coaching is over. Because uh, I always felt I was realistic. If there's no market within 12 months, there will not be a market after 24 months. And uh, economically, I couldn't wait much longer. And all of a sudden, Uh, Dr. Thomas Stoll reached out to me, uh, and this was a huge surprise to me um, because Ulm at that time was already a good club. Yeah, and I felt probably uh, I need to establish myself in the second division again before um, first division offers come, or internationally outside of Germany, something. But all of a sudden, he he um, offered me the job after. Um, I think eight years before, um, I turned down an offer already from home. So uh, I will never forget uh, um, him having this, the, this, um, yeah, the, the, like this openness, yeah, like offering somebody a job mm -hmm. twice like, after um, being turned down. Yeah, like, this shows a lot of character. Yeah? And mm -hmm. eight Innovation. years later, he, yeah, eight years later, he says, well. I can still see you being our coach. Um, do you want to have it? And yes, uh, I was desperate to take that opportunity. And I think it turned out well for all of us. Extra option on this ATO. I'm drawing up an extra shot option because there yes. is a certain uh, more place. Where would, have, would, where would have it taken you if not basketball after Osnabrück? I so probably I would have rather I would've, after Quackenbrook actually. Yeah, no, it was after Osnabrück. Um, um, Probably I would have done an ordinary job in in, in any in any business. Yeah, like I cannot say exactly what it would have been. I learned Industriekaufmann um, mm -hmm. at a very um, good organization, a very good company. 
um, maybe I would have gone that way again. Maybe I would have done something totally different. Um, but I have no real idea. I, I was hoping I, I can remain in, in in the area that that I am most passionate about, and that is basketball. Um, one the most one single most important skill as a coach. I feel you need to be able to communicate with players. And uh, this is pretty obvious. Uh, so, so what do I mean with that? I feel you need to understand their needs, their, their concerns. You need to put yourself into their shoes. Um, and when you communicate with them, you also need to be flexible to some extent but also be be um you need to hold hold on to your principles as well yeah so it's it's that fine line um in communication yeah being flexible on the one hand um having your integrity all the time on the other hand yeah? so you cannot bend too much but you also need to be able to bend and um, this quality is shown in all kinds of communication with players. And the single most important skill as a sports director? <clears throat> mm. You need to identify talent for uh, great value. Uh, so identifying talent is easy. Yeah, But now uh, you, you need to be able to... to get that kind of talent for, for a price that, that's cheaper than what you would expect you would have to pay for a player. Mm -hmm. And I want to finish off with a leadership quote, and I want you to comment. There's, this is from Twitter. Uh, I just found it randomly. Chantel, uh, 100%, she's not listening to this, 100%, but uh, <laughs> Chantel uh, gave some good leadership uh, advice that she's seen lately so she's it's not her she's quoting somebody so maybe you can comment on that getting angry at people for making mistakes doesn't teach them not to make mistakes it teaches them to start hiding their mistakes yeah it's excellent um again when i speak to people about my leadership approach i tell them one of the most important uh, things i do in order to to evaluate myself is i i I look at how many positive feedback and how many negative feedback I gave. Uh, and if there was a um, practice where my negative feedback was more than 50%, I would immediately have to adjust. If there was a, a video session where I showed more negative clips than positive clips, I would immediately have to adjust because I believe in the power of positivity. Uh, I, I believe. Um, in, in the power of encouragement. And th this quote is really good. I can totally relate to it. Um, players shut down when you're just getting angry at them. Uh, and um, they, they want constructive criticism, but they, they, they are much more motivated to, to change the things the coach wants to be changed um, when you, you, you do that in a positive, with a positive approach. Uh, um, 
you can motivate by fear. A lot of coaches do that, but um, I always believed in motivation through um, um, optimism, through positivity, uh, through through encouragement. And um, I would totally sign that that quote. And I want to add on to that because it's uh, also not only with the players, but also as a head coach with the staff, with your staff, because you also don't want to be treating your staff the whole time uh, negatively and and uh, yelling at them and for making mistakes because they start hiding their mistakes. They start getting uh, insecure. It starts to create a, some sort of insecure environment around you, which is more important as well for you as a, as a head coach to have a secure environment and to have guys who you can trust, but they can also can trust you that you will not um, take advantage of their mistakes because everybody makes mistakes. It's just a matter of how often you make the same mistake. So like not putting certain clips in the video or forgetting certain things that, that the other team does that you saw that they maybe looked over. So those little things have to communicate it within the staff as well, I believe. So and not only with the players, but with the staff, I think the leadership is uh, just as important. In 12 years of me being a head coach, I think not once have yelled uh, at one of my assistant coaches and uh, called them out in in the, in the practice. And I've seen that with coaches for sure, but But I always, you, you treat them, um, there's a high chance the way they will treat you. Yeah? So mm -hmm. if I disrespect an assistant coach, I shouldn't be surprised if he disrespects me at some point. If I disrespect a player, and um, yes, I yelled at player too, I was loud, um, but I always try to maintain a certain level. I, I never um, swear at them. I never... Names. Um, um, you need to see we're, we're playing in front of 6,000 fans. I, I'm calling out a player. He's insulted. How can I expect him to, to be respectful towards me? I don't see that. Then. Uh, so I need to be respectful, need to communication, and then I can be sure he will. Uh, live up to that as well. For example, it was always super important to me he would high-five when I up out. And this is a nice little tool a player has when he wants to show the coach, well, I'm getting subbed out. He will refuse to give the high-five. Mm -hmm. The player would do that once, he wouldn't do that a second time. Yeah? Like, this was a red line, he, he wouldn't be able to cross again. Yeah? They would learn their lesson. Okay, once you disrespected me in front of 6,000, You will never disrespect me again. I will have seals. Thorsten, I can sign off on that. And uh, we're signing off. I appreciate your time. Thanks for, for, for joining uh, this podcast. And it's, it was really fun. It was really in-depth in and, and really uh, constructive um, conversation we had. Thanks, thanks for that. I, I love your podcast, Benas. And uh, I feel honored that, uh, that I, I was part of it today. Thanks again, and hopefully, thanks. hopefully, we'll see you soon. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank Bye. you.